Welcome to season three of the Growth Medium podcast. My name is Sarah, a second year medical student and one of the co-hosts of the Growth Medium. And I'm Mim, a biochemistry graduate from Queen Mary and I'm also a co-host of the Growth Medium. This season on the Growth Medium, we talk to experts like Dr. Nagat Arif and Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn. Together, we unpack the myths and misinformation around women's health. We are also joined by many brave individuals who honoured us by sharing their stories and experiences with things like PCOS, endometriosis and much, much more. Join us every Monday here on the Growth Medium so we can grow our mindsets together. Enjoy! When we look at medical care today, I'd say it has progressively superseded our expectations in terms of the quality and accessibility of care. Unfortunately, there are certain cultures and biases in medicine that have remained embedded and ingrained in the practice, such as gender and racial biases. In today's episode, we will be discussing the evolution of women's health. There are certain disparities between the quality of care women receive compared to men that were prevalent from the dawn of medicine to this day. Where did this systemic and social bias evolve from and how much has changed from the past? We will be talking to Eleanor Claghorn, feminist culture historian and author of the book Unwell Women, with whom we will be discussing the main events in history that have helped shape the way women are cared for today. Welcome back to season three of the Growth Medium podcast. This season, we have chosen a very special theme and that is women's health. And I can't think of a better way to start the season than to travel back into the past and to look at how healthcare for women has changed over the years. We are joined today by a special guest, Eleanor Cleghorn, who is a feminist cultural historian and author of the book, Unwell Women. Hi, Eleanor, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Sarah, thank you so much for having me. So let's get straight into the episode then. As Sarah said, Eleanor, you're a historian. You carried out your PhD research in medical humanities, was it? It was in humanities and cultural studies. But after my PhD, I did some postdoctoral work at the Ruskin School of Art at Oxford. And that was on an interdisciplinary medical humanities and arts project that was looking at a rare neurological condition known as mirror touch synesthesia. Oh, interesting. So you didn't just do the PhD, you did the postdoc as well. I did, yes. Yeah. So you've done that and then after you've, I think in the last year you published your book Unwell Women. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what inspired you to do this PhD and postdoc journey and then go on to publish this book? Of course. So my PhD looked at women artists throughout history, so it was quite a different field. But I was looking back at hidden histories or overlooked histories of women film artists from the first sort of 50 years of of cinematic production. And my impulse was to do lots of archival research and look back to understand where we got to in the present. And at that time, fields like art history and film history were still very dominated by male artists. So I was very interested in what we weren't being told and how that could uh, enable us to better understand different gender disparities in the present. So while I was writing my PhD thesis, I was pregnant with my second son. And he 
when it was my third, I think my 30 week scan, he presented with a heart condition. And this turned out to be a rare condition called congenital heart block, which occurs when the baby, so the growing fetal heart, the AV node that controls how the heart beats, how the chambers beat in time, was being damaged. And so his heart rate was very low. This is quite a rare condition. And it's usually caused by the maternal immune system mounting an attack on the fetal heart. So antibodies cross the placenta and damage the heart. And one of the reasons that this can happen in a person is that they have an autoimmune disease. Now, I had not really had any awareness of what autoimmunity was. I'd heard of a few of the diseases that are autoimmune, but I didn't understand what this process was. So I was tested for these particular antibodies and I had them. But the focus at that time was really on making sure that I was treated in a way that would then correct what was happening in my baby's heart and save his life or save him from having to have a pacemaker when he was born. But nothing was really explained to me about how these abnormalities or unusual behaviours in my own immune system would affect me. So nine weeks after my son was born, and he was born healthy and well and with a functioning heart, thank you to the amazing NHS and incredible fetal cardiologists, um, I started to get very sick and I had a heart condition too. And it took my doctors about 10 days when I was in hospital to figure out that what had happened to my son and what was now happening to me were part of the same immunological process. And so I was diagnosed with the autoimmune disease, systemic lupus erythematosus, most commonly known as lupus, and referred for care at a lupus clinic at St. Thomas's. My disease was managed and I haven't had a life-threatening flare since, thank goodness. But this experience of being diagnosed really put into context experiences I'd had over my life since I was about 20, when I'd been in pain, especially in my joints. I'd had swelling in my ankles and wrists, migraines, digestive issues, mental health issues around being in pain, photosensitivity. And every time I went to the doctors throughout that decade, I was dismissed or distrusted or disbelieved or just told that what I was going through was something I should expect as a young woman. So my pain was always blamed on, you know, in quote marks, my hormones, or my lifestyle, or my weight, or, you know, one doctor suggested I was probably pregnant and just didn't know. So I didn't understand then that this was what was happening to me was part of a systemic issue that women do tend to be overrepresented for negative experiences when they're trying to be diagnosed, especially with pain conditions. So I sort of thought it was just me and that I was maybe paying too much attention to my body and that I was fussy or dare I say hysterical. So the diagnosis was a real vindication that I knew knew that something was wrong with me, but also a real sort of watershed moment in my mind that the, the medical system had failed me and failed to diagnose me principally because it couldn't look past the fact that I was a young woman and therefore my pain wasn't real. So as I started to recover, I started to look back into medicine's history to, to try and find some explanations for why autoimmunity in particular, which is very overrepresented in women and people born female, was still so difficult to diagnose and still so difficult to understand. And 
that was my practice anyway as a historian. And I started to find these women, these unwell women in the annals of medical history who say had lupus a century ago or 60 years ago. And the experiences that they, or the, their pain, their symptoms, their length of diagnostic time was so similar to mine in the year 2010. And it occurred to me, hang on, we've moved on exponentially in medical science and biomedicine, but in our attitudes towards the source of women's pain, the severity of women's pain, the reality of women's pain, we haven't moved on really at all. And that was the sort of, that's a long answer to where the germ of the idea for my book, Unwell Women, came from. And so when I came to get my book proposal together, it felt like a time in history. So this was sort of 2018, 2019, where issues around gender disparity, especially in the treatment of chronic illness, in the treatment of, you know, women's life cycle, health ramifications and conditions were really coming to the fore and there was a lot more press and media attention around this terms like the gender pain gap and gender health gap were being used there were articles in mainstream newspapers there was more activist endeavors happening online and I thought okay this is the right time to not just write a book about what is happening but explain why it's happening and look at the whole history of medicine in order to really trace its roots because the, the gender disparities that we face and the issues we face in, in women's healthcare at present are not new. They are, have a very, very long historical precedent. And quite often these attitudes are very ingrained into the biomedical knowledge that we now apply to many different health and illness conditions that affect women. So that was the inspiration was very personal but I always wanted to kind of expand or telescope beyond myself because my experience is shared by hundreds thousands millions of women across the globe and by hundreds thousands millions of women throughout history. And your book Unwell Women so I I did come across it in a Waterstone bookstore and at the time we were still looking for a guest to have on for this episode and it just happened to be in the new new release section i saw the cover and it was a beautiful cover it is the, really beautiful. the illustration the cover of the book is just stunning i have it right here <laughs> so it's like you said it hadn't been really addressed you before and so yeah it was quite interesting to see a book like that i feel well first of all Shout out to the incredible designer of the cover, whose name is Michaela Alcano. And you can look her up online on Instagram and Google. And her book uh, design, book cover design is just incredible. She's a complete genius. So yeah, recommend looking her up. You might find some other covers that you recognize too. Um, it, yeah, it just, it did feel like the right time. And I was so pleased to be able to write this book in a way that didn't feel marginal and I'm not just saying that because it's for sale in Waterstones or because you know it came out with a big publisher but in a way that I was allowed to write this in an accessible way and because it felt to me like these histories so often history is feels inaccessible or mired in dense language or you know distance from who we are in the present 
And I really wanted to write a book that anyone could read, even if they had no knowledge of medical history, even if they had no knowledge or prior interest in issues around feminism, especially around health and body feminism. Because these issues, whether you consider yourself a feminist or a historian or whatever, these issues in some way do touch all of our lives. And it's our right, I feel, to learn about where these issues come from and to situate ourselves meaningfully in histories and understand that when we say encounter a dismissive GP or when we are prescribed the wrong medication or not refer for a diagnostic test in time, that it's not our fault. And it's often not the GP's fault either, that it's the fault of a system of knowledge and practice that's very old and really hasn't necessarily disentangled some of its more punitive and oppressive ideas about marginalised people from its knowledge. So it hasn't kind of decolonised itself. And it was really important to me to put that plainly and to have a book that anyone could read if they were interested in that subject and not have it kind of squirrelled away in a sort of very academic or very clinical or very historical text. Yeah. While doing the research and getting myself familiar with the whole topic, a lot of what has been published were research papers and they had very technical and clinical terms. And it does make it difficult for the person who's not really a scientist or not really a historian, just the general public to read. Definitely. And I think this field of sort of writing and thinking about our bodies and learning about our bodies particularly is so important because it feels like one of the main issues that there is that sort of all the main impediments to women and marginalized people receiving the health care they need and deserve is that there just isn't enough education or understanding about our bodies and our diversity and our illnesses and our and the way that health conditions affect us uniquely because women of course are not a monolith you know we're not a monolithic category and there isn't and quite often we are lumped together as this kind of subgroup in clinical trials or you know women are all this one thing and we're not and there's you know such a diverse range of experiences body experiences cultural experiences social experiences that all shape how we are treated within the medical system, also how we relate to our bodies. And it was important too for me to at least discuss some of those differences and that part of the problem is that we're lumped together as this category called women and sort of not understood beyond that, beyond the idea that we have reproductive organs and we are feminine. You know, there's this sort of very limited understanding and it feels quite archaic still i think medicine from the dawn of time has been heavily influenced by racial and gender biases as as you've mentioned and it still exists even though science has developed these kind of cultural views and um, stigmas have remained and women women of color of ethnic minorities and black women in particular have taken the brunt of this misogyny and really plain racism and sadly there are so many examples throughout history and so if we look at the field of medicine um, that particularly focuses on women Women, which is gynecology and the study of female reproductive systems and more. Can you give us a brief background on how this field of medicine came to be? Yes, I can. So of course, gynecology in some form, in not necessarily the professional form we know it to be today, but the practice of caring for or understanding or treating 
the reproductive organs labelled female, of course, dates back to the very beginnings of medical time. In the ancient Greeks, my book begins in ancient Greece with writings by physicians such as the Hippocratic authors, Hippocrates. They were all very interested in how, of course, how babies were made, conception, pregnancy, birth. But they were also very interested in this organ called the uterus that was, you know, the vessel of new life. So there was always these kind of practices in medicine that could you can call gynecological. And so there's a very rich history of gynecology that goes from the ancients through the Middle Ages into the early modern period. But the sort of heyday or the kind of golden era of the emergence of professional gynecology really happened in the 19th century, where medicine itself as a practice was becoming much more professionalised. And obstetrics and gynecology wasn't just, you know, this sort of caring, you know, touchy, feminized discipline, but actually something that many men wanted to stake a real claim in and create a real sort of masculine reputation around. And a lot of the sort of forming of gynecology is a very, you know, upstanding gentleman's discipline. And I'm talking here about the UK and the US, so Anglo-American gynecology, focused on developing you know, cure, so-called cures and treatments for many of the ailments of the female reproductive organs that have been known about historically for centuries. And that was also a time when many of these men thought that the way to advance their reputations was surgically. And we, in the book, I talk about how gynecology in the UK was really a process that was forged through often completely unnecessary and brutalising gynecological surgeries that sometimes were genuinely, you know, useful and saved lives. I'm talking here about surgeries like ovariotomy, which is the removal of the ovaries, which sometimes was used to treat, you know, life-threatening cysts or tumours, but was also because of our attitudes about the influence of the ovaries and the uterus on women's minds and behaviours. Operations like ovariotomy were often justified because women's behaviour and temperament and attitudes did not comply to kind of ideal social norms. So she could be deemed hysterical, nervous, you know, and this was often thought to be very rooted in menstruation, very rooted in the biological behaviour of the ovaries and uterus. So the justification for performing some of these gynecological surgeries was horrifyingly broad and also I believe, very violent. And in the context of the 19th century, when professionalization in women's medicine or medicine for women is really accelerating, there was a surgeon in America called James Marion Sims, who is rightly one of the most contested and controversial figures in the history of medicine. And he was for a long time called the father of American gynecology. And he worked as a doctor in Alabama and in a, in a town called Montgomery, where two thirds of the population were enslaved. And he had a surgery in his backyard and he would treat, he was one of the only physicians to treat slaves. So he worked for plantation owners and he would treat enslaved people when especially women and especially after obstetric injuries which is as horrifying as it sounds and there was a there's a condition called vesicovaginal fistula which can be caused by obstructive and traumatic and difficult childbirth 
And in the sort of early mid 19th century, conditions like these were deemed incurable. But Sims decided that he could perfect, in his words, a cure for injuries like these. And when he met a young enslaved woman called Enarka, or was was sent her by her owner, who suffered vesicovaginal fistula after the birth of a child, he decided she was incurable. And then he thought, well, no, wait, maybe I can figure out how to cure this. And this so began a period of time in which Sims effectively experimented on enslaved women in order to develop gynecological procedures, many of which are still used today. And the reason that Sims got his moniker is because these procedures that he invented did save lives. But at what cost? At the cost of the humanity, dignity, pain of enslaved women. And, you know, these kind of colonial histories that are embedded in medicine are really important to tell. They're very, very important and we understand this. And the reason that Sims felt justified partly in in what he was doing was because of very dehumanising myths, racist falsehoods that were perpetuated at the time that black people, black women in particular, were not vulnerable to pain, that they didn't feel pain in the same way that refined middle class colonial white women did. And of course, this is a misbelief. It's a complete falsehood. It's biological racism. But it was perpetuated by anthropologists who were sort of justifying or or apologising, or they were apologists for chattel slavery. And it was convenient for the purveyors of, of horrendous human rights abuses like slavery and colonial medicine to say, well, they don't feel pain, so we don't need to think of them as human. And this seems like it is truly horrifying episode in the history of medicine, but it's just one example of how the humanity and feeling of ethnically diverse people, especially black women, has been denied and how that has been really ingrained into medical attitudes towards the pain and suffering of ethnically diverse people. And today we see it in the woefully poor maternal mortality rates, especially amongst black women in the UK and the US, we have some of the worst rates in the world. And partly this is down to this awful idea, this complete misapprehension, this racist falsehood, that when a black woman expresses her pain, that she is not necessarily seen as hysterical or fussy in the way that I as a white cis woman might be, but she is perceived as not being able to feel that pain at all. And race and gender bias studies published as recently as 2016 bear this out, that there is still a degree of unconscious bias around how, around racialized differences between pain sense, in pain sensitivity. And these sort of antiquated and completely false ideas that people of colour, ethnically diverse people have fewer nerve endings or thicker skin are still with us in some way, even if they're not articulated out of the mouths of healthcare professionals. They are ingrained in and have not been challenged enough in our medical discourse. And 
in that answer you briefly touched on hysteria so in the past hysteria was aligned a lot to women a lot of women's symptoms were you know they were just kind of brushed off as being hysterical or nervous i was just curious you mentioned the removal of the ovaries sometimes happened because the woman in question or the female in question didn't have the displayed characteristics that society wanted at the time where did that belief kind of come from that the ovaries were somehow linked to that just hey hello i know you're listening i see that you're interested in busting science and health myths well you can check out thegrowthmedium.com to find out which five books you have to read to get on some serious science myth busting I know it's it's bananas, but it's another one of these long-standing myths that there that existed probably since the beginning of medical time in somewhere or another, but particularly came to the fore in the 19th century again, that there was this consent or sympathy between the female reproductive organs and a woman's mind. And that there was a sort of nervous kind of channel almost, and that what was happening in, in the ovaries or uterus could influence personality and behaviour and temperament and vice versa. And there are a lot of theories that emerged in the 18th century around nerves and around sort of channels for human emotion and feeling. And this was at a time when doctors were truly trying to figure out like, where does emotion come from? What is sensation? How does it actually happen in the body? How is it manufactured? Now, of course, again, 18th century, very patriarchal society, medicine is completely male dominated. And the doctors come up with this idea that women are preternaturally and inherently nervous, that their nerves are very refined, that they're at the mercy of these kind of nerves that they can, and therefore that they can become very sort of emotional and untamed and unruly. And they link this very much to the reproductive apparatus. So theories about the ovaries being linked to the emotions, there was a few different gynecologists who postulated ideas that because the ovaries were discovered to have play a role in, in the menstrual cycle, that they thought there was like this nervous trigger that was happening from the ovaries to the rest of the body. And it goes back to the old thing that, you know, menstruation makes us completely bats and crazy. And it's really embedded in this theory that there's sort of this nervous sensibility between the ovaries and uterus and a woman's mind. And I think we see this play out today when, especially when conditions and illnesses related to menstruation such as endometriosis, or life cycle events like menopause, perimenopause, puberty, things that are centred around a woman's reproductive organs, around her menstrual cycle, always seem to first be put down to anxiety, stress, emotion, and not down to something that's just happening in the body that needs to be understood as such. And this is because of this really long precedent that, you know, Women be crazy because ovaries. <laughs> Women be crazy because womb. Um, which was really, you know, this justification for whipping them out in the 19th century. Um, and now, you know, we're, thankfully we're not exactly advocating for uh, surgical removal of ovaries if a woman is depressed. But there's still this tendency to dismiss anything gynecological in the first instance as, as mental health, as emotional 
as psychological. And so it seems like the nervous attitude or what was labelled as hysteria, which, by the way, is an awful, awful way to describe women's symptoms. Awful, absolutely horrible. That seemed to form such a large part of how doctors would diagnose women, what kind of prescriptions, I guess, they would give or what they would recommend. Could you give us a little bit of background on how hysteria itself came to be? Like, where did it come from? And what was specifically labelled as hysteria? So hysteria is really interesting because I think we all understand the implications of calling a woman hysterical. It's belittling, it's diminishing, it's undermining. Um, But the roots of hysteria as a medical condition really, or a diagnosis, really came about in the beginning of the 17th century, sort of towards the end of the terrifying persecution of many women across Europe for presumed acts of witchcraft. Now, the witchcraft trials across Europe saw about 75% of the around 45,000 people who were executed for crimes of witchcraft who were women. And towards the end of this awful period in history, some doctors were trying to figure out, well, okay, if these people appear to be possessed or bewitched or involved in some sort of arcane goings-on, what's actually happening? They're clearly not possessed by devils. They're clearly not having sex with the devil and then killing people. So what's really happening to make them appear to have the symptoms of witchcraft? And there was a doctor called Edward Jordan who decided that what was really happening was that the women involved were suffering from uterine diseases or uterine conditions. Again, a bit like what we just talked about, about the womb being having this really profound influence on a woman's personality and temperament. And he talked about how the uterus could become very mischievous and <laughs> cause a whole lot of trouble and many different disorders if it was underused. So therefore, if a woman is not yet having marital sex and and getting pregnant or underused because a woman is older and not doing that anymore and that the uterus would start to would kind of get out of balance its humors would be out of balance and it could exert this influence over the body and make a woman appear as if she were under the dominion of spells as another doctor put it so hysteria really emerged very profound connection between the uterus and and the personality, the emotional sensibilities of women, as weirdly a more humane explanation for witchcraft. And I know that sounds crazy, like one evil to another, but for the for doctors in the 17th century, this seemed, you know, this seemed very kind of forward, would have seemed very forward thinking to think out of this mythology of witchcraft and into back into the body. Let's think these are diseases to be cured, not crimes to be punished. So in a way, in that context, it is humane, but it also upset an apple cart that then were, you know, it was rolling around for centuries that when women are unwell, especially in ways that relate specifically to their, the biology of their sex, that it's very linked in with their emotions. And hysteria really came to prevalence in the 19th century. Again, that sort of key century for many of these awful ideas about women's bodies and illnesses in many different definitions by many different doctors. Hysteria effectively was whatever the male doctor decided it was. 
but broadly speaking, it was a collection of physical and emotional psychological symptoms that appeared to be linked to dysfunctions that were very specifically female or feminized. And it's really difficult. You can't say that hysteria is one thing because it depended on the doctor. So for some doctors, it was a collection of physical and mental symptoms caused by disorders in the nervous system. So it was a neurological thing. For other doctors, it was centered around the reproductive organs. So it was a gynecological thing. But whatever the definition was, the diagnosis was always the same, that women were somehow not performing their social roles, that they were not obeying what their bodies should be doing, that they were not domesticated, that they were not towing the feminine line, basically. And therefore, they were becoming ill because of that. So that's the resounding thing that links these many different definitions of hysteria that we find from the 17th right up until the early 20th century, when hysteria was subsumed into psychoanalysis with the likes of Freud. But as a medical definition, hysteria wasn't just flimsy and like a wastebasket thing, obscuring real understanding of what was going on in women's bodies. It was also often a punishment. So it was a way of kind of intimating that women needed to be punished, schooled, put right, you know. And of course, we hear a lot about women being admitted to asylums throughout the 18th and 19th century for conditions that can be called hysterical. And so it really was this sort of horrendous, horrendous definition that I believe really put back medical understanding of what's really happening in women's bodies because even though the word is taken away as a diagnosis it's it's ramifications like its fingerprints are everywhere all over women's healthcare i feel from when women report pain to when women are going through difficult menopause it's always there you know it's really sticky it's got real sticking power it seems like it was just an umbrella term for everything and anything that they couldn't understand that was ailing women and I don't really think the use of his, the word hysteria has ever really stopped. It might be applied in, in different ways. Um, you know, for example, people described as emotional, women described as emotional or anxious, or you're worrying too much. It's fine. It's normal. And just not being believed when they talk about their own symptoms is just hysteria in a different form. The, the label hysteria in a different form. You're totally, totally right that it was this blanket term for almost any conceivable symptom in a woman that doctors didn't understand. And that's what's key. And there were many doctors in the 19th century. Well, not many, but there were a few doctors in the 19th century who pointed this out and said, look, hysteria is, is and not really all hysteria is, is an articulation of male doctors' ignorance. And it's easier to blame women's emotions for what is going on in their bodies than it is to go, okay, I'm going to really think and I'm going to really listen and I'm going to really try to understand. It's And that, as you say, that is what is still with us today. You know, it's still with us when women are called anxious, when they've been suffering chronic pain that doesn't have an immediate cause. It's still with us when women are, you know, called stressed or highly strung or you know too attentive to their bodies or whatever form it takes and it's still I think that sort of blanket or coverall for not necessarily doctor's ignorance but general medical blind Mm -hmm. spots around 
what really causes women's illnesses. And interestingly, in the 19th century, talking about one's pain and symptoms was included as a symptom of hysteria. So just by dint of speaking up and saying, I am in pain, I feel pain, my body hurts. They were like, well, you're hysterical because you're paying too much attention to your body and you're talking about it. So therefore, you're not really ill. You're just hysterical. There's no winning. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) So eventually, research into women's health was carried out. It slowly, slowly built up. But from what I'm learning today, it seems that the research was mainly centered around kind of reproductive or maternal health and not really about how other diseases can present in women. So the physiology or the pathology of, I don't know, the main example I can think of is heart disease, how that would affect women as opposed to uh, men. And... (laughs) Even Sarah told me over here, one thing that was kind of written is that some diseases were caused by being too educated, women being too educated, but that's a whole other story. So when did we kind of see that change where medical professionals realised that actually women's health is a lot more than just their reproductive organs? I think we really see this change and I don't think, I must add that I don't think it's changed nearly enough. I think it needs to continue to to change so much. I think we still, there's still this default in medical thinking, I feel, that women are primarily reproductive and that what we need to prioritise when we say women's health or what we mean when we say women's health is really maternal health, reproductive health, fertility health. And I feel like this, although this is still really with us and it was always the priority, it's always been the priority in, in established forms of thinking around women's health. I feel like it started to change in the early 19th century with expanding understandings of human bodies and the causes of illnesses and diseases, but also with more of an understanding around what chronic ill health was. And chronic ill health is still a relatively recent phenomenon in the history of medicine. You know, we're living much longer now. We have many more diagnostic processes. We have much more understanding of the breadth of chronic disease. You know, we have illnesses that we can live with now for as long a lifespan as someone without a chronic illness. And, you know, this this kind of understanding is very new. It really came around sort of after the Second World War. But still, I think, so say, for example, endometriosis, which, as you mentioned earlier, is exactly one of those diseases that was blamed on women being overeducated and being much more interested in the careers than having babies. And so even when it even when understanding of diseases like that was expanding, there was still this narrative embedded into this understanding that is somehow linked back to women not doing what they should in terms of, you know, how they're using their bodies. And around the sort of 1950s, we get increasing understanding of autoimmune diseases, for example. And even in those early understandings of autoimmune diseases, there were huge opportunities to generate knowledge around how they affect women differently. When, But because research has always been so fixated on reproductivity, so much was missed and we're still playing so much catch up. So even though, you know, throughout the 20th century, we've come to understand acute and chronic health in ways that do reach far beyond these kind of binary gender ideas about bodies it's very it's always been very difficult to separate that so in lupus for example you know lupus was 
understood to be autoimmune in around the mid-century, around the middle of the 20th century. But it, it actually existed in medicine's history since about the 9th century. And, you know, it went through all these kind of lives until it was understood to be what it was. And diseases always have this, you know, different history. They always shift meaning according to their historical era. But when lupus was first sort of discovered as autoimmune, they knew then that it affected far more women than men. But there was this tendency, again, to blame the symptoms of lupus on women's emotionality, on women's sort of dysfunctional relationship with their femininity, rather than to look and go, okay, what is it about women beyond these kind of traditional ideas about femininity that means that they're more predisposed to autoimmunity? So we missed out on that because these ideas are so ingrained and we still have so much further to go in terms of understanding women as humans first not as reproductive vessels and i think another pivotal moment in the history of women's health would be the increased education around birth control perhaps early 1900s and they were led by some prominent figures such as margaret sangers and mary stopes but they they did have kind of the intention of liberating women and dismantling the stigmas and the demystification debunking all these myths around women's health but it wasn't their only agenda so to say was it it wasn't and you know it's it's really interesting to look at figures like margaret sanger and marie stopes who are often cited as heroes in the history of women's health or the history of women's liberation around reproductive issues especially but they were very much products of their time and they were very they were situated within a particular ideology and that ideology is called eugenics so margaret sanger was a nurse activist health educator who pioneered what became planned parenthood in the us and she went to considerable lengths to ensure that women had autonomy over their reproductive choices and she'd worked as a nurse in the lower east side in the early um, 1900s and had seen a huge amount of poverty and ill health and decided that this was because women were not able to limit or effectively limit the size of their families and so she really pioneered bringing birth control different options or sort of homemade remedies at first but then birth control provided through clinics to women in New York and she founded a birth control clinic. Now this was at a time when distributing information about birth control and contraception in the US was illegal. So she went to prison, she got out of prison, you know, she she avoided jail by coming to the UK. You know, she it's a really incredible story and she was very determined that women should have autonomy over their own bodies. But it depended on who you were. So she was very interested in working class women and in freeing working class women from these sort of burdens of having to manage, you know, six families and all this, you know, maternal injury and poverty. But she also saw birth control not just as a matter of a woman's own choice, but also something that could be used to create the kind of future that was attractive to, you know, white, able-bodied people without disabilities or without mental health conditions. And Sanger, Sanger's eugenic beliefs were tempered by the rise of Nazism. 
she saw what was happening in Nazi Germany and in Nazi Europe. And, you know, like, I didn't quite mean that. I just want a better future for everyone. You know, so I'm not apologizing for her views at all. But Marie Stopes, who was our version, if you like, of Margaret Sanger in the UK, she held very similar views and she was much more outspoken about her ableism and her racism, especially. And, you know, there were many people in our country, in the UK at the time, who believed that we should have this fit, illness-free, mental injury-free white country and that birth control was one way to achieve this. And Margaret and um, Marie Stopes, I'm sorry, advocated not just for, you know, again, very much contraception should be a woman's choice. Women should be able to enjoy sex without worrying about having babies all the time. But then when it came to people of colour, when it came to people with disabilities, when it came to people who were, you know, a lower social demographic, lower economic demographic or had mental health, she believed that their reproductive choice and freedom should be removed from them for the good of the state. And it's shocking, but it's also important for us to remember that we can hold different narratives at once. We can say, okay, Murray Stokes was an important figure in the history of reproductive choice and justice in the UK or the emerging, but we can also say, okay, but we can look at the dangers and evils of what she believed and we can and it's really really important to always think that when some of us are given choice and autonomy around our bodies that there is very often people who are not and that there's a balance between the two things so it helps us learn I think knowing the truth about some of these histories is really important because it enables us to really think okay we can be really grateful for the reproductive justice that we have in this country, but it's precarious and ideological. And we've always got to try and defend it on behalf of people for whom that choice is taken away. And I think learning about people like Marie Stopes and Margaret Sanger can help inform our thinking in the present about the injustices that are embedded in this question around reproductive freedom for so many people across the world. So when birth control was coming out, was there a lot of resistance from families or from the general public with it? And if there was, why was that? I mean, from my understanding, at the time, poverty was rife, families were really big, people were struggling to put food on the table. So yeah, why? if there was that resistance, why was it there? Lots of the resistance to birth control in those early decades of the 20th century was ideological, was religious. It was to do with preserving this traditional unit of the family. And also, I believe, in a general fear around giving women freedom and choice around what they did with their bodies. And, you know, it rather upsets the patriarchal apple cart to enable women to have economic freedom. So if they can choose when to have babies, that also means they're able to work, which means they can live independently, which means that they, you know, that certain rights around how they're allowed to live have to be shifted. It's to do with maintaining a sort of patriarchal societal status quo. And I think that's where a lot of the ideological kind of fear came from. You know, when the pill was first introduced into Britain, so in the 60s, you know, it, at first it was only prescribed, it was prescribed off-label for conditions including endometriosis because they were not, or for menopause issues because they were not explicitly allowed to say that it prevented pregnancy. 
pregnancy prevention was a side effect. And it was because governments didn't, the government didn't want to appear to be endorsing the dismantling of the ideal traditional family unit. And, you know, at the time as well, it was very difficult to get it unless you were married. So it's like, okay, if you're married and you have some kids, you can go to a doctor and say, look, I've, you know, I've had enough kids or I'm you know, not well, or I can't go through another pregnancy. Okay, fine. But if you weren't married, there was a real stigma around getting hold of it. It was still a doctor's choice. And, you know, I've heard stories about women passing wedding rings around waiting rooms in the early 60s so that they could pretend they were married so that they could get it. So it's always been that thing that's been kind of dangled in front of women. Like you can have a little bit of freedom. You can have a little bit of choice, but we will give you permission. We, this system of power that medicine absorbs and, and reflects, we will decide if it's your, you know, we will always retain a little bit of that hold over you. And, you know, now, of course, it is our choice. We can choose. There is not a medical hold over contraceptive choices but there still is a medical and legal hold around for example the right to abortion you know we still have to have two doctors sign off on it and although you know it's rarely in this country refused there's still this old legacy that when it comes to decisions about our bodies that the ultimate decision doesn't lie with us it lies with medicine or with the system of power that medicine represents and of course this is something that is high in all of our minds at the moment when we look at what happened very recently in Texas when abortion has been made effectively illegal. Um, And we think about how precarious those rights are and how if we really, you know, return all those rights and decisions to women themselves, you know, what a sort of incalculable amount of suffering and ill health will actually be avoided. So it it is fascinating the way that, yeah, these the history of birth control was about liberation, but it was also about kind of testing how much freedom you're going to give women over their bodies, right? Like little bit by little bit. Because ultimately, you know, that sort of traditional patriarchal model in this country was was the most important to governments, most important to the architects of these new liberative freedoms, at least in the beginning. Yeah. And it's actually interesting that you mentioned that birth control couldn't be given to unmarried women and married women had to have a couple of kids because the thing that came to my mind when you said that is that even today, if women want to get tubal ligation, so their tubes tied, usually under the NHS, you have to be over 30 and then you have to have two kids and ideally a long time partner. So I think these attitudes about actually women having their own choice when it comes to um, whether they, they want kids or not, it's not really gone that far because we still see it um today we do and this that's really interesting point because you know women are always still seen to go back to this thing about the uh prevalence of thinking about women as reproductive first and human second is that you know we are referred to as as beings as human beings that have reproductive potential and i'm using inverted commas there you know, in the recent, like a few months ago, there was this really hokey advice from the WHO about how much women should drink. And it was all couched in this language, you know, people of reproductive potential. And that sort of language is used in clinicals as well, in clinical trials, when they, you know, in the past, when women were exempted from clinical trials, because 
on the basis of their reproductive potential. And so rather than thinking about women first as humans who have choice and agency and are able fully to articulate that they may want to live a child-free life and have a tubal ligation, for example, that it's always assumed that the ultimate destiny and the ultimate desire of a woman, no matter what she says, is to have a child. And you cannot risk that. And that's not just about the woman herself, of course. It's also about this ideological idea that that's what women are for, ultimately. We're not for choice and freedom and autonomy. We're for performing a social duty. And I guess you see that as well in terms of recruitment for research. Researchers are reluctant to recruit women who are of, like you said, quote unquote, reproductive potential to perform clinical trials or to develop research that is needed because they are scared it would damage their quote unquote reproductive potential. I mean, this this is still something that, you know, has really obstructed understanding about not just women's health, but about how women metabolize, might metabolize drugs differently. And, you know, the standard, of course, in clinicals is a white male about 35, you know, white cis male about 35. That's your standard human being. And, you know, a lot of the reason that women were exempted from major clinicals in the 20th century was a lot to do with the scandal around thalidomide and that thalidomide was given to, was the drug given to women to treat morning sickness and it was very very poorly tested and was not tested properly least of all on pregnant women or women of reproductive potential and it was assumed to be safe and doctors prescribed it and there were adverts everywhere saying it was perfectly safe and it turned out to be far from safe and cause disabilities in people's babies and the, so this was one of the reasons that women were exempted from clinical trials, which is bananas when you think about it, because the very reason that thalidomide was, you know, caused, was not perceived to cause these effects, apart from, you know, capitalism and getting drugs out quick, was because it wasn't tested properly. So it wasn't longitudinally tested and it wasn't tested over a pre- the, the cycle of a pregnancy. Now, I'm sorry, but there are always ways to research stuff. And, you know, there's an object lesson in why research is so important. And we see it now around things like the the vaginal mesh, like the mesh for pro-uterine prolapse. Again, a very poorly tested medical device that was claimed to be safe by manufacturers, that was approved for use, that doctors claimed to be perfectly safe, and it turned out to cause lacerations, terrible pain, incontinence, and women were then disbelieved again. And the reason why? Poor testing, not enough research, not enough thought about how women actually metabolize or live with these drugs or these devices. So time and again, we see this, that poor, the assumptions being made about the safety of drugs or assumptions being made about the causes and causes of chronic illnesses are not understood because there isn't not just the actual data-based research but also attention to thoughts feelings and experiences which are of course not really accommodated into what we call clinical knowledge or biomedical knowledge but if by listening to women and taking them more seriously we would have understood that something like the pill back in the 60s was had too much estrogen in and was causing symptoms 
we would understand that the mesh was not fit for purpose and shouldn't have been given to people. You know, we would understand this because it's that lack of listening and that lack of paying attention to someone when they say, actually, something's not right here. Oh, no, no, it's fine. It's safe. You know, that's what we miss out on. We miss out on so much insight. Because, of course, again, everyone's bodies are different and we cannot be, you know, if we're going to be properly represented in clinicals, we need to be represented across the life cycle, across gender variants, across ethnic diversities, not just, you know, some women, but all women, all people who identify as women, all ages, all stages of menstrual, menstrual cycles. And of course, it's historically, you know, we've been called too variant because our hormones apparently fluctuate too much, therefore it's too expensive to generate research. But I just feel like we ask the wrong questions. You know, we approach this concept as this binary men and women when actually we have so many different variables to consider when we think about how we can deliver the best healthcare treatments, the best medications to all people. Or it's too difficult to study because there are so many different fluctuations in your hormones. I was watching um, this video that Mim recommended to me and so I believe they were doing research on women's uterine cancer. They conducted the research on males who do not even have a uterus. So <laughs> I, was, I was taken aback as to wow, you know. That is extraordinary. I mean, this you know, this kind of thing you hear all the time, like this idea, and I'm pretty sure it's a myth that women fluctuate too much and therefore we don't deliver stable results. Well, isn't that reason enough? If that is what is believed, isn't that reason enough to justify a completely different approach to clinical testing? Because if you're saying that all women vary too much, then how can you assume that all drugs are going to be suitable for them, let alone ones that have only been tested on men, right? Which is the case especially in lots of pain medications but um yeah I just yeah I feel like that you know that exempting of women isn't you know it's this paternalistic idea again that we need to, that we are not able to make choices that we're not able to decide for example to volunteer in a clinical trial because you know woe betide something happens to our bodies that means we can't have babies it's never what if something happens that makes it difficult for you to think or enjoy sex or go to work it's always ba the baby thing is always like the default that's the worst thing you can take from us and you know in doing that then we miss out on all this other understanding that can improve the health and well-being of women everywhere yeah, well, let's hope the advances continue and the research continues in the right direction. But if we look back to advances in women's health and research, many of them were spearheaded by women themselves, so in the past, and to this day as well. And they debunked a lot of the myths around women's health, from cancers to periods to the treatment to normalising periods, everything. And they advocated for change in the way women were diagnosed and treated by medical professionals. So they were humanised people, personalities, and every woman was an individual. So what are some of the most obscure myths perpetuated by male gynaecologists throughout history that that you can remember and perhaps what has shocked you the most? I think one of the, you know, one of the most astounding is always that because women menstruate, they are not able to think. And that sounds crazy, but it was the basis of a lot of theories about how women should not be allowed to receive education at the same level as men and boys. 
how they should not be admitted into professions, including medicine, and how they should not be allowed to deviate from domesticity and motherhood. Because in the 19th century, end of the 19th century, there were all these theories that human beings only had so much energy, so much physiological energy. And that because women expended a whole bunch on menstruating, they didn't have enough left to think. And so there were misogynistic doctors who believed that if women received the same education, so secondary education, college education as men, and were educated to that same standard, that they wouldn't pay any attention to what they needed to do to their bodies when they were menstruating, which is sleep all the time and they would end up yeah sure they might end up with a degree but they'd also end up with shriveled ovaries and a useless uterus and they'd be unmarriageable and they'd just be spinsters like zombie like spinsters wandering around causing all this trouble and it's outlandish but this these theories really came to the fore around the time that what is known as the woman question came um was raised like emerging in debates in the UK and the US especially. And these were questions around the expansion of women's rights, the expansion of women's freedoms and independences. So it's not surprising that these anti-feminist misogynistic doctors doubled down on these myths around women's bodies and minds, especially linked to menstruation, at a time when it looked like women were going to start gaining freedom, independence and rights beyond hearth and home. And there was a brilliant doctor in America called Mary Putnam Jacobi, who really debunked a lot of these myths around the idea that what women should do when they menstruate is sleep or rest or avoid intellectual activity. And she did one of the first kind of what we might call a qualitative study, where she incorporated experimental physiological data gathered from many different women, mostly sort of college aged, sadly, mostly white, I think all white, but at least she was trying. Um, so it wasn't the most diverse, but it was quite diverse in terms of age and I think economic background. But she gave women, you know, the opportunity to talk about what menstruation was like for them, what their energy levels were like. She did all this experimental physiological data on um, respiration, blood circulation, uh, body temperature, all these things and wrote this really groundbreaking study called The Question of Rest for Women in Menstruation that was published in 1877 that completely debunked this idea that periods had this such a debilitating effect on the body and mind that women couldn't possibly do anything apart from have a tiny bit of schooling, sleep a lot, marry a dude and have some kids. You know, she completely debunked this and she's like, actually, unless the patient is really unwell or has an underlying gynecological condition, it's, it's not desirable to rest during your period. It's actually better to, to think and go outside and, you know, move around a bit and do what you normally would do, live your life. And the thoughts of Mary Putnam Jacobi were really, really important. And then she also paved the way for future physicians. One of my favourite that I talk about in the book was called Clelia Duel Mosher. And she did something similar in the early 20th century. And she really took male gynaecologists to task around the way that they pathologized, especially menstruation, menstrual ill health, and the way that they really perpetuated this, this idea that menstruation was a horrible disease, that it was always an illness, that it was a stigmatizing, you know, defiling debility. And she really normalized it. And she was a really incredible person. She similarly did 
a lot. And she was a scientist too. So she did all this incredible physiological research. And she also interviewed really diverse selection of women and, you know, came up with, again, another study called Women's Physical Freedom that looked not just at menstrual health, but about the sort of the health and strength of women more broadly. So she figures like her were incredible. And, you know, women were not formally admitted into, well, they could train at some medical schools, but they were not allowed to be licensed to practice medicine until around the late 19th century. And so many women like Putnam Jacobi, like Moshe, were coming into medicine on this platform of, listen, women need women doctors because women's health is mired in all this sexist mythologizing and misogynistic mystification. And what women need is other women who know women's bodies, who live in women's bodies to create knowledge that debunks all this nonsense. Otherwise, they're going to suffer and otherwise they're going to lose their lives. And a really important purveyor of this particular line of thinking was a doctor based in Britain called Louise Martindale, who revolutionised the treatment of uterine fibroids and also certain gynecological cancers in about 19, from about 1920. And she recognised at the time that women who had fibroids, especially uterine fibroids, the, the most common treatment recommended was, was hysterectomy. And, of course, hysterectomy at this time in history had a really high mortality rate, leave women really injured, and it was completely unnecessary procedure for that particular disorder. And she had visited Germany, she visited a clinic, a more progressive clinic, where these two uh, obstetricians were pioneering the use of x-ray therapy to treat fibroids and certain other gynecological conditions like cancers. And she sort of transplanted this to Britain and opened a clinic in Brighton where she treated women for fibroids using x-ray therapy. And she also wrote a book called The Woman Doctor, where she talked about why women need women doctors. And one of the brilliant things she was talking about was that, you know, women for too long have been cut up and used as surgical material and their lives were being limited and ruined by this. But she was like treating professional women, mothers, women who had careers, who didn't need to be injured and debilitated by treatment. I mean, x-ray therapy had other side effects that we understand now, of course. But at the time thinking in this way about how you don't just treat women humanely, but how you allow them to still live their lives was completely radical. And it led to, in part, to the creation of other women-centred, women-led medical institutions and establishments, such as the Marie Curie Hospital, which was a hospital founded in, I think, 1930 in London, which was staffed by women for women, and they used x-ray therapy to treat fibroids, other gynecological conditions, and certain gynecological cancers. And they had an absolutely stellar survival rate compared to so many other hospitals who were performing hysterectomy and who were using x-rays. And it was, you know, a completely groundbreaking and utterly necessary intervention into what really was a very barbaric and very male-dominated discipline. So I think episodes like that are so important when we think now that it seems like we're still in this hysterical and historical moment in women's health that there are actually these incredible pioneers 
that we can learn so much from who were really articulating, you know, a century ago, the things that pioneers of more humane, equitable medicine today are, are still pioneering. So there's this brilliant positive history amidst all the, you know, harm and hysteria. Sarah and I, we had a discussion last week when we were talking about this episode and Sarah was reading your book. She was finishing up and she was telling me uh, some horrific things that uh, came up. And one thing that I kind of thought, I don't know if this is a bit of a reductionist take, but it seems that a lot of women's health history, rather than being centered around wellness for women, making women feel better, it was more about controlling women, their choices and their lives. Is that, do you think that's a fair kind of conclusion to make? Yeah, I think that is very fair. I mean, medicine is a system of power and it's always reflected because it's all historically been male dominated and it is always reflected in sort of justified patriarchal social norms and yes i think that there was there were definitely some male doctors and writers over history who did not think that health intervention was a mechanism of control but there were many who did and the idea the the association between ideas about women's biology and attempts to control who they are and what they do with their bodies and what they do with their lives is very, very present. And although today we might think we've moved away from such ideas, you know, medicine, I don't think is a mechanism of patriarchal control, but it still has the residue of that attitude and those ideologies embedded into it in in many ways. And unfortunately for women and marginalised people, we're still haven't got away enough from the sort of legacy of controlling ideas around say you know that are articulated in the form of something like hysteria because they're still with us when our pain is denied or when we're not assumed to be allowed to have all the information about our health or to make informed choice and informed choice and informed consent is so important. And it comes from understanding all the options available to us, being given all the information, being educated really clearly. And historically, you know, information about bodies and illnesses, especially about women's bodies and illnesses, was withheld from them. And the health feminists in the 70s that's called it like hidden behind this white coated expertise. And I think a way of moving forward is to really trust us all, no matter what our bodies are, no matter who we are to make informed choice and to give informed consent. And that only comes from having all the information, not from being, you know, mystified and, you know, assumed to be one thing or another. Like, you know, the recent debates around offering pain relief for things like IUD insertion and removal, I think are a case in point of this. You know, women feel ashamed to ask for pain relief because they think they're going to be reiterating this notion that women make too much fuss but actually it's completely it should be I believe a human right to request pain relief you know pain is not a moral issue it's a physical sensation that differs for all of us and we see it in an attitude like that that women have internalized some of these mystifying ideas that are kind of ingrained in attempts to control women's lives and this is what I think we really have to learn from and what we can strive to move past if we're going to create a more yeah just a more equitable and humane healthcare not just for women but for everyone because it will have resounding benefits for everybody who needs healthcare. yeah absolutely and then 
last but not least, our final question for today. So as we've seen, we've talked about some really prominent figures, women researchers and medical professionals in history. And we can see that having women in positions of influence within the medical field is one way we can revolutionise and improve health outcomes for men. What other ways do you think we can employ to speed up the process? Ooh, this is interesting question. I think that culturally and socially, we're already reckoning with the injustices ingrained into our healthcare systems. And I think this comes from podcasts like yours. It comes from having conversations. It comes from networking, from joining together, creating communities, whether that's physical communities, online communities, because I really feel like when we speak out as marginalised people about our experiences of our bodies, our experiences of injustice associated with having our bodies, that we do offer up the opportunity for others to do so. And although it seems like a sort of placatory gesture or kind of like a soft idea, All throughout history, when women and marginalised people have spoken up and spoken out and been given the platform to speak to power in that way, it has changed the culture around health and the culture around bodies. And so I think that's really, really important that if we're in positions where we have the energy or the strength or a little bit of influence and we can say, look, you know, this is my experience, I'm offering you a chance to to share yours. I think that's hugely important. And it's so uh, validating to me to see that that is happening much more, especially over the last few years, enabled by Instagram, enabled by online communities. I think that's really, really important. And it also sheds some of the shame and stigma that we've been made to feel around having our bodies, right, that we really need to move past, and that still does affect you know, how we speak about our bodies, when we seek healthcare, and exploring, because it's not just about going to the doctors and being told, oh, we don't believe you. It's also about in the first place thinking, am I going to risk going to the doctor? Am I going to be understood? Do I want to go through that trauma? And the more we can understand all these variables in what is and what obstacles exist to women and, and other marginalized people accessing and getting the health kind of healthcare they deserve, the more we can change it into the future. So I think keep speaking, keep talking, keep holding space for people's experiences. And, you know, not everyone wants to do that or can do that. So I think it's something really revolutionary if we can. Um, I think that learning as much as we can about our bodies I mean, not everyone should have to become, you know, a detective or an architect in order, or a historian in order to understand why they're being dismissed at the doctors. I'm not saying that, but education is so important, like grassroots, self-directed education, community-based education is really, really important too. And just remembering that, you know, our bodies are our own and we do have rights around them and We've just got to keep articulating that. I feel like it's, you know, of course we need massive systemic change. We need to rethink medical curricula. We need to think what diseases, illnesses, health conditions we prioritise when it comes to large-scale research funding. We need to think about, you know, so much stuff needs to change systemically. Um, But we can do so much. 
as people who are involved in in all different ways in these conversations. And I've seen it change so much over the last couple of years. And that gives me massive, massive hope. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eleanor. It's always interesting to look back at the history of medicine, see, you know, what we came from, what lessons we can learn, and hopefully apply those lessons to make a better future, in this case, obviously, a better medical system. Thank you so much for having me and for your brilliant questions. It's been a real joy. And thank you for listening. I recommend checking out Eleanor's book. It's definitely worth a read. It's called Unwell Women and I will link her book in the show notes. Also make sure to give us a follow on Instagram and TikTok. Links to that will also be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know your thoughts down below in the review section. We love hearing from our audience. Absolutely. Also, check us out on Instagram at The Growth Medium. We have loads of infographics and fun reels for you to share with friends and family. And don't forget to follow us too. If you have a topic you're passionate about or a story you want to share, then come and join us. Send in your application over on thegrowthmedium.com. Oh, and we've got some freebies and articles and lots more on there too. Come back next Monday for another episode of The Growth Medium. Bye. Bye.